This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with Harvard's Jason Silverstein the House Republican passage of the AHCA in context of social justice. Dr. Silverstein, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Jason's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, this past May 4th, the House of Representative Republicans passed the American Health Care Act, or the AHCA, by a narrow 217 to 213 margin, or with no Democratic votes. The bill, essentially an effort to repeal the 2010 Affordable Care Act, was passed despite Congressional Budget Office scoring, which was published just this May 24th. According to the CBO's estimate, the bill's spending and revenue effects, if enacted, would in 2018 cause 14 million Americans to lose insurance coverage and 23 million Americans to lose coverage by 2026, largely because the AHCA would cut Medicaid spending and repeal the ACA's Medicaid expansion, or in some decrease Medicaid spending over the 10-year budget window by $834 billion. The HCA would, among other things, end in the individual mandate and mandate penalties and allow states to waive the AHACA's essential health benefits provision and allow states to impose insurance underwriting on individuals who have a lapse in coverage. The CBO also estimated the individual market remains stable in most states if current ACA legislation was to remain in place, however, under the AHCA, by 2020, the individual market would become unstable for one-sixth of those participating. The bill is estimated to save a net $119 billion over 10 years, largely due to less generous tax credits, fewer subsidized individual market participants, and again, substantial cuts to Medicaid. This allows for House Republicans to eliminate approximately $600 billion in ACA taxes, tax cuts that would disproportionately benefit the wealthy. Again, with me to discuss the AHCA in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunity, and privilege, or from a social justice perspective, is Jason Silverstein. So, Jason, with that as uh, apologies, a somewhat lengthy uh, introduction, uh, let me go to my first question. You've written quite a bit via the site Tonic, and I've listed on the website a link to your writings via Tonic. You've written quite extensively about uh, repeal of Obamacare. Uh, what's your understanding, or what would you emphasize would be the changes um, if uh, the Republican law was passed for health care to Americans? Well, I think one of, one of the things that strikes me over the last few months is the question of whether or not this is even really something that we can call a health bill, uh, or if this is really just a way of getting tax relief uh, for high-income people and it's using a, using a health bill to get there. Uh, what I think is clear in, in the reforms that are being proposed and if the AHCA becomes the law of the land is that it will essentially turn on its head 
what the Affordable Care Act was trying to do, right? Affordable Care Act was trying to make health care more affordable um, and getting coverage to people who needed it and provide financial assistance to low-income people. HCA uh, flips that around, right? It's going to take a lot of money from the people who need health care the most, right? So it's going to take away from the most vulnerable people who are on Medicaid, older Americans, and it's going to shift that uh, over to younger people. Um, I think that, look, if, if you're a younger person in this country and you are healthy, uh, good news, uh, so long as you never plan on getting old or sick uh, or poor, you should be fine. Um, but when we look at the CBO score, it tells us the story very clearly, that it's going to take away more than $800 billion out of Medicaid for the poorest and most vulnerable Americans, and then it's going to give a massive uh, benefit to high-income earners and uh, the healthcare industry. So I think it's fairly clear here that, you know, who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers, uh, and unfortunately, I think the losers here are going to be the people who need health insurance the most. Thank you. I did say in my final intro comment that we'll discuss this um, effort by the Republicans in context of distribution of wealth. So that's your point exactly, which is the ACA redistributed wealth uh, by allowing subsidies to pay for lower-income individuals to afford health care and to expand Medicaid, which, of course, is a program uh, for the poor or near poor. Um, the AHCA reverses this and cuts these taxes imposed on the wealthier to afford uh, to make affordable subsidies for the less wealthy under the ACA. So it's difficult to disagree that this is largely about uh, distribution of wealth, the ACA going from wealthier to poorer, and now uh, back in the opposite direction. It's sort of obvious. It, it never gets discussed in those terms. Um, I'll ask you, why is that? Why is it that it doesn't usually get discussed in terms of... That this is really... A, the, the ACA and the AHCA really fundamentally are about uh, redistributing wealth in this country. Yeah, you know, um, I, I also am kind of puzzled with that because it, it could not be more clear exactly what's going on. And, and one of the reasons why it's especially puzzling is that when we look at, look, who is harm going to fall on? And it's going to be uneven, and it's going to fall unevenly on the people who live in so-called red states. We're talking about, you know, when we saw these CBO scores, they would, what do they project? They say to your, you know, they look at, well, what would the average, you know, 64-year-old who's living near poverty, maybe making just 175% of the federal poverty line, what are they going to have to end up paying, right? We're talking about people... Uh, who are going to be disproportionately affected by this, who are also the people who are voting, uh, people like Donald Trump, Paul Ryan, and, and the people who are, you know, so intense, who have been dreaming about this for a while. I think mean, Paul Ryan said he's been dreaming of cutting Medicaid since he was drinking at a keg in college. Um, how is it that this is not being discussed, especially because it's punishing the very people who put uh, the Republicans in office in order to make this the law of the land. Exactly. And in fact, I appreciate your mention of uh, the 64-year-old. So for those interested, 
the CBO score, which was out May 24th, if you look at Table 5 in that document, they estimate that for a 64-year-old at 175%, as you noted, of FPL, their premium would go from $1,700 a year to $16,100. So, um, and we do know if you look at the Medicare population, their annual income, so these would be people just a year younger, the mean income for Medicare beneficiary is in the low uh, 20,000s. So $16,000 premium is just by definition unaffordable. Also in your writings, let me ask you to focus on uh, women's health care because you've written extensively about this, the war against women. Uh, you probably know that just as of yesterday, uh, it became known that there is a proposed rule sitting at the Office of Management Budget that would allow for, if finalized, any employer, insurance plan, college, or other provider or payer to cut uh, women's family planning or birth control benefits simply by saying they have a religious objection. That, that is quite dramatic. Uh, your argument, again, for why this is a war on women? So, yeah, it's quite disturbing. And, and what you're bringing up here also forces us to think that, look, you know, there are a lot of things that we need to be paying attention about, concerned about when it comes to the repeal of the ACA uh, and the possible implementation of the AHCA. But it's also the case, right, as you're mentioning, that we don't necessarily need to even do that through some regulatory changes that aren't going to take a single vote based on the way that the HCA was written. Uh, someone like Tom Price um, and someone in the you know uh, health and human services, uh, they can go through and they can change the definition of women's preventative health care coverage to just be redefined to not include birth control. Um, and with that regulatory change that doesn't take a single vote, uh, can dramatically change the lives of millions of women. Uh, what we also need to keep in mind here that sometimes doesn't get talked about is that birth control is extremely important as also a part of maternity care, right? If we think about family planning and maternity care, we know that having access to contraception is very important for women, right? Proper birth spacing, for example, we have a lot of evidence from the medical research that if we want to uh, keep women healthy, pregnant women healthy, and we want to keep uh, newborn babies healthy and make sure that you know, we avoid things like having low birth weights, we avoid things like having uh, early preterm births, it's very important that these women have access to contraception, right? But this is part of a larger story that for a while, uh, Republicans have really been after maternity care, right? It's one of their big jokes that they like to say that, well, how could it possibly be that a man would need maternity care, right? Or, or how could a woman who had a hysterectomy or maybe is older ever need this, and why should they have to pay for that? Um, Again, you know, this obviously is ridiculous for anyone who knows how insurance works, um, or maybe anybody who was born at one point. Uh, but once again, we come back to the same, you know, point here, which is that not only is this, you know, 
unconscionable and it's going to be taking health care away from people who need it the most because we know the most common reason why a person goes to the hospital is for maternity care. But again, it's going to publish people or sorry, punish people in red states, right? We're look, when we look at who is getting uh, maternity care, say, through Medicaid, um, those are deep red states. Mississippi, I think more than 60%. I believe Louisiana is maybe close to 70% of women. 70% of births are covered by Medicaid. If you take that away, uh, you're cutting directly into uh, maternity care and at a time when people need it the most. Exactly. And in fact, the oddity of this is, and I just saw this statistic, that last year, uh, per the Guttmacher Institute's data, uh, we saw the fewest number of abortions in this country since Roe v. Wade in 1973. So mm. if you are pro-life, you're against abortions. So why would you cut birth control? In any event, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, it's it's befuddling. Let's let let's another important issue certainly is disparities in health care. Uh, there are significant, uh, pervasive, for example, relative to, to uh, disparities in infant mortality. I know this from work previously in midwifery. The uh, infant mortality uh, rate for African American women. Um, is twice what it is for white or non-Hispanic white, and it has been double since statistics started to be captured now approximately 80 years ago. So uh, the twice infant mortality rate has never been reduced. So uh, we do have substantial disparities. Obvious question, but the AHCA certainly is not likely to uh, reduce those, correct? Yeah, no, not not at all. You know, and I think that there was, you know, reason reasonably a comparison going on recently between okay, well, what was this most recent CBO score versus the previous one? What does this new AHCA look uh, like compared to the one that? I think most people thought was dead before, when really we should be looking at how it changes from the status quo. And what we know here is that what the ACA did uh, in trying to make a difference in closing some of these disparities by getting health insurance to people who otherwise would not be able to afford it, we're now going to go back in time for some reason. Um, and again, these are people who critically need health care. I mean, one example that doesn't get talked about enough are people living uh, with HIV or AIDS. Um, Medicaid expansion was critical uh, for people living with HIV. Not only is it the largest insurer of people with HIV, but it also changed things dramatically in that before the ACA, you used to need to become disabled in order to qualify for many people. Mm -hmm. um, the ACA's expansion of Medicaid now allowed people who had HIV to qualify on the basis of, of their income. This was hugely important, right, because before Obamacare, people with HIV were put into this terrible situation where they had to get very sick, even though we know that the comprehensive care that everyone deserves to have um, could have kept them healthy. Um, so the idea, just taking HIV as an example, that we're going to go back to this time period before Obamacare, once again, we're talking about widening these disparities that we know exactly how to solve. Um, I think one of the other things that doesn't get talked about enough, 
and probably because it doesn't have a very high number attached to it, is when we look at, you know, kids with very complicated uh, health issues and maybe end-of-life issues. Once again, these are kids who are super expensive to take care of, right, mm-hmm. who may require more than 14000 or $17,000 worth of health care a month, who are on Medicaid in order to help get them through a complicated illness or through even end-of-life care, the AACA, or sorry, the ACA uh, made this a lot easier by creating concurrent care um, and by expanding Medicaid access. But if we cap that, it's going to force states to make some tough decisions on what they can cover or what they can't, uh, which is going to end up punishing the sickest uh, people here who have the maybe, you know, some of the more quiet voices who, who don't have a lot of... Uh, a lot of people talking about what they're going through. Um, But, you know, if we had another hour, we could go through example after example. But the bottom line is that if if you're going to cap or cut Medicaid, and look, by 2026, what are we going to be at? We're going to be at half of the funding. Um, How on earth are states going to be able to cover people who desperately need health care? And the answer is that they're not. You know, also relative to Medicaid, the cut has dramatic effects on home and community-based services, mm-hmm. which keeps, ironically, Medicaid people employed because they have right. these complementary services that actually allow them to work. Uh, I, I should say further, the AHCA is proposing to place per capita caps on Medicaid spending going forward. The House wanted to do it immediately. The Senate looks like they're going to postpone the per capita cap to make Medicaid a defined contribution by in 2020 or beginning in 2020. So that also would have a dramatic effect on how far or what services and how far they go for Medicaid bennies. And of course, we know there's a strong correlation between being poor and sick, not surprisingly. Uh, so it's not as if uh, Medicaid bennies don't need uh, these services, or in fact, they do need them disproportionately. Let me, um, I'd be remiss, you know, that we're pretty bleak here. Um, I, re, I, re, I would be remiss, Jason, if I didn't ask, uh, you know, makes, making silk out of a sow's ear here. Um, everyone, there's more or less, if there's universal agreement in this town or in D.C., there is general agreement that the Affordable Care Act could be improved or incremental improvements could be made, even though that seems to be off the table over the next month or so. Where, what areas do you think would be opportunities to improve what we have currently? And I ask that because there is a fair amount of doubt that the Senate actually can move a bill in time or before the August recess, which is to say, then we default to a conversation about how can we improve the ACA? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, you know, I, I I think that's a great question. I, I think that there are a couple of answers to that. You know, one way to improve the ACA is quite frankly to let the ACA to work. Um, when we think about why why has why has the ACA not done what it's set out to do? Uh, I mean, well, it's done incredibly well, right? It's got the got us to the point of the lowest number of uninsured Americans in recorded history, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Um, but look, you know, when we 
there could be one, there could be improvements made to the way that we distribute information uh, and help people understand uh, their options and getting enrolled and how many people out there. Um, I do not have the study uh, coming off the top of my head here, but there was a study done as to how many people could benefit from credits who just weren't getting them, who just didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there just an information gap there? Um, uh, You know, and and look, we do remember that when the ACA was first being implemented, there, there was quite a push from the GOP to stop having, you know, these, you know, Obamacare navigators to come in and, and help educate people, right? They were mm-hmm. being kind of pushed out of <laughs> of public health offices. Well, we need to put that back in. I think that that's an important step there. So I think there's the information uh, issue. Um, I also think that one way to really help improve the ACA's performance is by you know, quite frankly, the president uh, toning down the uncertainty that he's introducing into the marketplace. Um, we know that when insurers go to set their premiums, they're responding to what's going on in the world, right? Um, and I, I think that the uncertainty that's being created by the Trump administration and talking about whether or not they're going to pay the cost-sharing subsidies or not, uh, that's obviously having an effect on whether or not an insurer wants to, how they're going to set a premium or, or whether or not they're going to participate uh, in a certain market. Um, so I think that could be a second option. And then the third, of course, and I think this gets into a bigger philosophical territory, is that while you know, I, I appreciate, of course, what the ACA has done. I think that there is a significant difference between uh, having healthcare as a mandate and having healthcare as a right. So, uh, I think that's a bigger philosophical question. Um, I, I do think that there's a difference there. I think that if you were to argue that healthcare is a right, um, I think that that then introduces maybe some other uh, other options that we could have there. Um, but I, I'm sure that that gets into opens up a, into an area of many more political. <laughs> minefields such as, you know, should we cover people who are undocumented uh, in the United States? Uh, ACA says no. I would say yes. Um, But, you know, that's maybe a debate for another day. Great. Thank you. Um, I I will note, per your comments, that obviously the current administration is really undermined by not paying the risk quarter monies, cost savings, repayments, uh, his announcement to uh, uh, shorten the open enrollment period. They've made several steps on their, per your earlier comment, regulatorily to undermine the success of the current law, the ACA. Going out, I have to ask this question. You have a very interesting role at Harvard. So I'm curious to ask as a going out question about your work. Generally, you're a, you're a writer in residence at the Harvard Medical School in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. And you're also at the Chan School of Public Health at Harvard. Um, could you tell me just quickly for our listeners a bit more about your work uh, in Cambridge? Oh, thank you. Th- thanks for asking. Yeah, so I am. I currently teach at Harvard Medical School in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine, and I teach in uh, especially in the Global Health Delivery Program, uh, where we work with students on uh, not only you know thinking about how to go out and deliver health care to the poorest parts of the world and places that do not have the same things that, uh, well, I am very fortunate to have as I sit here talking to you on Longwood Avenue, the home of three of the uh, best hospitals in the world. Um, but we actually send our students out to go do those projects. Uh, and then they come back and tell us about it, and that's part of their uh, 
their work here. So I'm very so privileged you're, you're, to be you're, part of that. So you're recruiting for Paul Farmer. Um, I, I, I work closely with, with Paul Farmer, that's, that's for sure. Um, Paul and I have taught uh, for a while together. I've been his head teaching fellow for several years and teaching global health to a very large class of excited and, and bright-eyed Harvard undergrads. Um, and also I'm lucky to teach in the, the doctoral uh, program over in the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. But, you know, all of these are, are fortunate opportunities to get to talk to really smart people about how is it that uh, we can get health care and the sort of health care options that, you know, I would want for myself, that I would imagine someone else would want for themselves and their loved ones, uh, to get those to people across the world uh, and, to, and to not say that, you know, you know, it's impossible to do, um, or maybe that some people can't afford it or it's too expensive, uh, that it's a right for people to have and trying to close the gap between uh, people who have access to to a healthy life and people who don't. Uh, so I'm lucky to do that. Well, great. That's obviously very interesting. You reminded me of Roosevelt's comment of freedom from fear and absent to health care. You don't have that freedom. So with that, Jason, I'll say thank you very much. We're at our time unfortunately, so appreciative for your comments and maybe uh, for your uh, statement about we could spend another hour, maybe we'll get to that and discuss more uh, theoretically uh, the right of health care. So thank you again. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.